From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. That relationship between sales and marketing, it's the most important relationship. It's more important than your boss. It's more important than the people that work for you. If sales and marketing aren't completely aligned and just running and rowing in the same direction together, it doesn't work. Hi folks, Justin Schreiber here. Today, my guest is Heather Zinzek, former CMO at Pluralsight. Heather took a big risk when she stepped away from a $3 billion business at SAP to take the top marketing job at an unknown startup operating in stealth mode. But she clicked with the founder and CEO and knew that she brought a complimentary skill set that would make for a dream team. That company was Domo. And even today, tech startups still talk about the masterful marketing programs that she and founder Josh James executed. On today's show, Heather talks about her formula for igniting growth in early stage as well as established companies. In the process, she talks about how she built an incredibly diverse team in a surprising part of the country. Let's jump into the conversation. Heather, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Well, Heather, we've got some great material to cover. You've worked at some awesome companies and there are some great stories nested in your experience at those companies. I wanted to start off, though, by talking about a very intriguing character that you met in your childhood. That character is Big Betty. I think probably (laughs) one of the best names I've heard in a long time. Tell us who Big Betty was and how did you meet her? (laughs) So uh, in our prep for this call, we had a great conversation. And I talked about how I am from humble beginnings. I grew up in a small town in Texas. But my father is the true story of just the American dream and humble, coming from humble beginnings. And he grew up on a carnival. His parents, my grandparents, owned a carnival in Texas. So um, if you've ever been to a state fair and all those rides, that's where kind of most carnivals ended up. Um, it's the similar rides. Whenever I go to a state fair and I see the Ferris wheel or the carousel, I'm reminded of my youth. And uh, as a small child, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world that my grandparents owned a carnival. And so, uh, you know, they sold it when I was about nine. But when I was a little girl, I would go and I got to be first in line for the Ferris wheel. And my favorite thing of all was cotton candy. And Big Betty ran the cotton candy stand. And she was so wonderful. And she let me work the cotton candy stand with her. So I would collect tickets. I would do customer service. You know, I think these skills ended up helping me later in life. Um, But the great part of that story is as a small child, you don't, you know, we went from very humble beginnings of carny folk, you know, all the way. I don't they ever think they would have thought they'd have a granddaughter that would have been Ivy League educated. Um, And I think I got a lot of skills um, and confidence uh, from doing spending some time in the summers visiting my grandparents on the carnival, and Big Betty definitely taught me a lot about uh, customer service and and how to deal with finances. And uh, so it was it was a, it was a great experience. Learning finance is collecting tickets for the carnival. I don't think I've heard that one, but it makes a ton of sense. I think the other lesson we learn here is that to qualify to work at a carnival, you need to have a good name. Oh, absolutely, 
Absolutely. I, I can just imagine the comment section for this particular episode. What what would your carnival name be were you to work at the carnival? So for all of the listeners out there, give that some thought. We will entertain the best and the winner. Maybe we'll place them at a carnival of their, their choice. All right. Well, you talked about your dad then and how your dad is such an important part of this story. He raised three very confident and incredibly capable girls. What was the formula that he used to be able to achieve that? You know, and just speaking of my dad, I, I told part of the story on the first one, but he was the first one in his, you know, family and the only one to go to college. And, you know, they were kind of like, you know, you don't need a, my great grandpa was like, you don't need a college degree to run the Ferris wheel. And, you know, he went on to, you know, get his MBA and be CFO of Fortune uh, 500 companies. Like he just was this great story. And I think, he re- he had this mental attitude that, of course, you can do it. Like, you can do anything you put your mind to. Of course, you can. Look where I came from and look where I ended up. And we grew up in a small town in the South, all sisters, all women. And uh, he just, you know, it was never it was never something I think he was uh, intentional about. It's just the way he was. If you wanted to do it, you could. No matter where who you are, where you come from. If you put in the effort and you reach for the star, of course, you can grab it. Why wouldn't you be able to? And he gave all of us um, that mentality. And my oldest sister uh, started an entrepreneur, her own business, and was extremely successful with it. Went on to sell it to a company and went public. My middle sister was an investment banker on Wall Street for many years. And then, you know, I've done reasonably well in the tech industry. And so I think it's because we grew up with the of anything that we wanted, we could do. We just had to put our mind to it. So what was life like for the three of you growing up, hanging out with your dad? What kinds of things would you guys do? <laughs> so I can, I learned how to spiral football by the time I was seven. I can deep sea fish. I can ride a dirt bike. And I mean, the motorcycle kind, um, you know, back in the South and that, you know, my sisters grew up in the seventies and, and, and myself in the eighties, you know, it, it was a very patriarchal masculine society. And so my father was like, I've got these three daughters. I'm going to teach them how to shoot guns. I'm going to teach them, you know, of course, you know, they're good at math and science. Of course they would excel at math and science. And, you know, in a small town in Texas, girls weren't supposed to be good at math and winning speech competitions. That's what the boys were supposed to do, but not the decent girls. That's my maiden name. Um, You know, my dad uh, pushed us to do everything and we never, I never consciously thought about it as a child, that there was a difference between what boys and girls can do, even though I think most of the people I grew up with grew up in households that that there was a difference. There's an interesting lesson there. I mean, your grandfather came to your dad and said he didn't need an education to run a Ferris wheel. In a sense, putting or imposing a, a barrier on your father and your father refused to accept that. And just as that was the mentality that somehow he was able to internalize, he passed that on to you and your sisters as well. That's right. There, there was, you know, it was just an obstacle. It was a speed bump. Whatever it was, you, you, you moved around it. I know that another one of your dad's business ventures, he ran a hardware store. Tell us a little bit about the hardware store and what your role at the hardware store was. So my father worked in corporate America and rose up to the ranks of CFO at a young age of a Fortune 500 and decided he wanted to move back to kind of near where we, he grew, he and my mother grew up and raise his kids in a relatively small town. And so he had, he was a serial entrepreneur, um, some wildly successful ideas, 
and some horrifically horrible ones. And we were very up and down. So I grew up in a very entrepreneurial life uh, household. And one of the uh, business ventures was he had the, the local hardware store. And you have to, for those of you probably on the podcast may not remember this time, but it was before there was Home Depot and Lowe's and Walmart. And so it was the store in town that everyone went to. And I started working there, I think at seven years old. Um, and shipping and receiving pricing items, you know, so before you price things electronically, you had to actually put stickers on them. And I worked my way up to working in the office, counting the day's receipts, which was large amounts of cash to running. The store was actually very large and had about 10 cash registers and running cash registers at like the age of 10. So, um, you know, and, and, really- and Heather, you say you worked your way up. So I'm imagining you started at six and by the ripe old age of 10, you'd landed yourself that sweet job. That everybody aspired to. I did. And the, the job I really wanted, which my father did, wouldn't give me until I was in my teenage years, was to run the information center. It was this big booth in the middle that you got to answer the phones and it'd be like, plumbing line two. And I so wanted that. He's like, I can't have a 10-year-old doing that. You're running the registers. <laughs> so that was an interesting time as well. I know that the big boxes were starting to move in your Home Depots and Lowe's of the world. How, how did you guys contend with that? Yeah, so we talked about this yesterday. So in the 80s in Texas, the oil market crashed and the economy was horrific. And at the same time, the big boxes were coming in. And my father made the decision to close the harbor store. It wasn't performing. He, he saw the writing on the wall and he was gotten more into small town banking. Like I said, serial entrepreneur, always the next thing. And so that summer, you know, I was like 12, I think, and they were closing the store. And you know, it was a, a large store that had uh, over 100 employees and there was a lot of decisions to be made, you know, because they were liquidating everything. And so suddenly within a couple of weeks time, people would just come to me for answers. You know, hey, so-and-so building supplies here. They said they could buy this much lumber. Your dad, you know, claimed it's a 30% discount. Can we, can we do that? Hey, so-and-so wants to get double. Can we blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I just started making decisions. People would come to me and I'd be like, yes, you can do that. No, you can't do that. Yes, over there, do this. Like, at 12 years old, which is kind of crazy. Um, but I think it set me on a course that like, if, you know, it's, you know, anybody who has imposter syndrome, fake it till you make it. Like here's a 12 year old pretending like she knows what to do with the, the closing of a hardware store and it, and it worked. I, I think there was a powerful combination at play there. There was a confidence, which I think probably came from the carnival. You were surrounded by people who love you, who supported you. You said you felt like you were the queen of the carnival. Of course, Big Betty had your back. <laughs> but you also had a competence that came from being in a business, being asked to make decisions and making decisions. And that combination of confidence and competence seems like it was such an important foundation for you in your early years. No, absolutely. And I think about that as I'm raising our three sons and how do I give them opportunities um, where they can fail and they without you know massive ramifications and they can go out and try new things to build the confidence so that the next time so that they're not afraid to try things to fail and i think you have to know you have a net that you have to have the support and love of people around you as a young child and i think you also have to be given those opportunities to be like yeah go try it you know go go do that go see it of course you should do that you know my father didn't tell us like hey go do this it just was expected like, of course, why, why wouldn't you answer that question about the lumber? You're standing there. You know? So I'm trying to do the same as a mother. And it's, um, it's not an easy, it's not, it doesn't come as naturally as one would think. It is a challenge. Well, so there was a wonderful education that you received just in life. You also went to some great schools, UT. Uh, eventually, you went to Wharton and graduated from Wharton. Was, was the college education and the deep focus on academics for you growing up always kind of a central focus? 
So, you know, my, my parents really believed in education um, because my father, you know, like I said, it was the, he was the first one to go to school. And then he traveled the world working for these large multinationals, um, just this kid from the sticks and it, it opened doors and changed his life. So there was very much a, you know, there wasn't a, Hey, you know, it, it was like when you came home with a 99 on a test, it was like, well, which one did you miss? You know, it was very much like you do your best education support and it's going to get you far in life. And I think it was interesting, though, <clears throat> even though they were very education oriented, my parents hadn't, you know, this this is in the 80s. They hadn't um, there weren't college. There wasn't college prep consultants you could hire. And um, they didn't know really how to you know, they had didn't have experience with going on college tours. So I ended up just going to the to the school nearby um, because it was borderline. It was like seven hundred dollars a semester, and I could honestly I could get in ba- based on where I was in my high school class without even taking the SAT or ACT back then. I know college applications are not like that now, and so UT was huge. Um, it's fifty thousand students, and I don't really think of that as an acad- I don't think I learned much, a ton academically there, but I learned how to navigate the systems. I learned how to be an advocate for myself. I learned how to accomplish the absolute best with figuring out how much effort did I really need to put in, like the 80-20 rule. Um, because no one was looking out for you. No one was paying attention. You know, my freshman year courses had literally 5,000 people in the room with me. I didn't know any of my professors in the four years I was there. Um, and so it was more of, of uh, I had a lot of life learning there, which I think really helped me do tech at scale, you know, because working in a large company like Oracle or SAP, taking those lessons of how do you navigate massive things? How do you figure out the important stuff to do um, was a life lesson. And then Wharton was totally different. You know, I was the kid from small town, Texas, that had had a public school education and I was totally intimidated. Um, And I, you know, and my classes were small and I did get to know my professors and I learned a ton. But um, I think what Wharton really taught me is it was a door opener and we all had the same door opened. It didn't matter who you were or where you came from. You had the same opportunities as everyone else. When you were at Wharton, I know that uh, one of your aspirations was to land a job in consulting. You shared a story with me a while back, though, about how that intern, that first internship came to be. Can you share that story? That is that is such a great story that I think will resonate with a lot of listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So I went to Wharton at 24. I was young. I don't know how I got in. I still think it's an admissions mistake. Um, because at, at that time, the average age was like 29. So most people had a lot more experience, a lot of really impressive undergrads. So I was a bit intimidated. So it's my first semester, first couple weeks of school. And then I'm walking across campus randomly with a guy that was a year ahead of me and had also gone to the University of Texas. And uh, I look over, the, they're setting up for the job fair. And I see, you know, the McKinsey, Bain, BCG booths going up. And I kind of say under my breath, like, Oh, I would, I would love to get an internship at one of those. And the guy next to me is like, Oh, that's a great idea. That's what you should do. And I was like, Oh, I would never, I could never get a job at one of those. Like I, I I just can't compete with everybody else to get one of those, you know, sacred spots. And he looked at me like I had three heads and he said, Heather, he's like, you're at Wharton too. Like you can get it just as easily as somebody else. And he said, and I guarantee you, if you walk in with that attitude and think you don't deserve it, the interviewer is going to think you don't either. So, so 
shape up. <laughs> and so I worked super hard. I figured out that they had this case method of interviewing and I practiced unbelievably amount of hours and then I crushed it. Um, and I ended up, I think I was the only person I knew, I'm sure there were others who had offers from all, from all three of the big three to go be a summer intern and had to choose. Um, and so, you know, at that lesson, it's just like, it's yet another lesson in life. Like, Hey, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, work your best, do, do you know, work your hardest, do your best. And you too can have whatever it is that you put your sights on. Yeah. I also out of undergrad went into consulting. I was really excited about the opportunity. I actually found out about management consulting. I was doing study abroad, was in a pub. I talked to some random guy that was up there at the bar and he said he worked for McKinsey. And I said, oh, well, what's McKinsey? And that was the first I'd heard of it. And then I said, wow, I would really like to work there. That sounds like a great spot. For me, I ended up um, starting in the summer practicing the case study interviews because I heard that's what they used. And I literally practiced them every day until January. It was like a seven month. My friends did not want to hang out with me because I was always like, hey, give me give me a question. Like, how many bowling balls can you fit in a 747? <laughs> and then what ended up happening is through some kind of, some stroke of luck, all of the tier two consulting firms interviewed first. I actually ended up getting dinged by several of those. But each time I learned from them and the companies that I really wanted to work for came at the end. And by the time I hit the final interviews, I had just practiced so darn many times that you know I knew how to do it. And I think that's how I got the job. So I think there's so much to be said for one, just having confidence in yourself, two, being over-prepared, and then three, walking in, having some fun with it and, and see what happens. If you bring your A game and you know you're bringing your A game, everybody's happier. So yeah, I totally agree. All right. So you you then uh, started your career in consulting, went into tech. And I know that those initial uh, years in tech, you were at some smaller companies and then bigger companies. How do you contrast diving right into a small startup with working for a bigger company where um, things might be more established, but maybe you're going to get a little less opportunity? What advice would you give to people that are starting off in their career in that? You know, I get this question a lot. And I think that you know, I hate the answer of it depends, <laughs> but it depends. Um, I think that there are different times in your career when different things would be more helpful to you from a growth, from your personal growth perspective. So for me, um, when I was right out of undergrad, like going into Anderson Consulting, now Accenture and their training program and teaching me how to code and put, you know, like learning all the basics, you know, just how to get up in the morning and make sure you're on time to work, um, to learning how to code, to managing your first people. They they had a very, it was big and they had a very great system for pushing you through. Um, and then, you know, there was a time where I wanted to spread my wings. And I, I remember I was in the Bay Area in the mid to late 90s and the dot-com craziness was going on. And I wanted to be a part of creation. Like I wanted to, you know, chart my own destiny. And I worked at several startups then. and then when the market crashed in 2001 for tech, the bubble burst, I thought, you know, it's time for me probably to go work for somebody that I can learn a ton from. I loved my some of my prior CEOs um, and loved the people I'd worked with, but they didn't have much more experience than I did. So at that time, it was great to go to Oracle. And what I learned at both Oracle and SAP, and I won't bore you with any of the details, is that I love growth. Like my favorite thing at any company, any job opportunity, even today, 
I only want to work with companies that are massively growing. Like I love growth, like debt restructuring and, you know, some of the stuff that private equity does to get costs down. I have no interest in that. Something's growing like crazy, doors flying off, you know, puts your street belt on. I mean, get me on board. I am in. And so I think, you know, at some point at SAP, I rose high enough through the ranks that when you're over a broad set of their products that aren't growing fast and super fast, I was like, I want to go back to growth. And I went back to startups because I, I wanted to create again. I wanted, and so that's when I left to go to Domo. So I think, you know, each individual, there's different times in your career that different things are going to be better for you to, to, to kind of grow from, um, from a personal level um, and from a resume perspective. I love that answer that it really depends on the individual and the situation. Every person is different. I think about myself, that quote from Groucho Marx, I wouldn't want to be part of a club that let me in as a member, has always resonated with me. I remember I remember in business school, I, I literally was approached by people saying, hey, would you like to be the CFO of my business? And I was like, no, I wouldn't. I don't know how to be a CFO. But then at the same time, I knew people in business school that just had the DNA of an entrepreneur. They were irrepressible. And no matter what, they were going to go out and figure it out and do amazing. And they have done amazing things. So if you're the kind of person that just loves to dive in, figure it out, defy convention, maybe going straight to that startup makes sense. I know for me, I'm more the kind of person that loves to learn from other people, from best practices, and then go out and tackle the the startup which which is a place that I'm at right now. So so there, there are a lot of paths, no path is perfect, but it depends on the individual. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit more about Oracle. Where did you leave your mark when you were at Oracle? You know, at Oracle I was in product management um, and then product strategy and I led about over 20 products while I was there. But they were all tiny products. So I was the David in the giant Goliath organization. And so um, the thing for me that was great about Oracle is that's when I learned, like, I love growth. Like, I had no interest in going and running the big, giant products that they I wanted all the small stuff that was growing. And so that was kind of the the thing that I really got out of it. Um, The other thing is Oracle was going through an acquisition spree um, when I was there, which was a ton of fun. Um, So I ended up on some special projects and other things while they were acquiring. I ended up inheriting a bunch of PeopleSoft products. And, you know, that was a borderline hostile takeover. And so how do you manage a team that didn't necessarily want to get bought? Um, How do you evaluate the next player you're going to buy? I remember we put together presentations that we took to um, the head of M&A for Oracle because we're like, hey, Oracle should invest in this area. So I think being a part of a large organization that's doing massive M&A um, both on the pitching ideas and the post-merger integration work was a lot of really great learnings as well. And you actually took an early look at the Siebel deal, as I understand it. I did. So um, I, uh, the, the head of the CRM product at the time, put together, or he owned a lot of things, but also CRM product, put together a small task force to evaluate Oracle's homegrown CRM product to see if we could get it to be a, a you know, native cloud app that was SaaS. And the, the five or six of us that were on this came back and said, no, you need to go purchase. And then they went away and then they came back and said, we're going to purchase Siebel. And then I was part of a small team um, that did some of the due diligence for Siebel. Um, and I left uh, Oracle and went to SAP before the acquisition closed, but that was those were both great experiences. One of the 
one of the things, I don't know if it should have been a light bulb for me, but it was, there are two ways to grow. One is organically and one is through acquisition. And when done correctly, uh, the acquisition can be a powerful arm. But I think that the key is the due diligence up front. What is this company that we're buying and understanding all of the different facets of it to make sure that when you bring them in, it's going to be additive and not just kind of something set off on the side that gets forgotten. No, absolutely. And that's been great lessons for me. At Pluralsight, we made acquisitions. And, you know, when you're a new public company that doesn't have a gigantic income statement, um, you know, we were doing a little less than half a billion a year in revenue. Like you buy something that you expect to get 50 million out of it or 75 million out of it in revenue. That's what the company is currently doing. Like, you have to really figure out, can we do that? And how do we do that? Do we leave the sales team in place? If you integrate them, like, and I learned a bunch of stuff at Oracle on the post-merger integration that really helped us as we were making acquisitions at Pluralsight, because as a public company, you can't stumble. You, you just, you just can't. And so there were things that we had to think about from a go-to-market motion to make sure that we could hit the projections. Cause you know, when you acquire a company, yes, you take cash out, but now there's ex- extra expectations on revenue. Um, and then also I'm a board member now at several companies and one of them just went through a series of acquisitions and, you know, helping them think about it's now interesting to see the things they had to think about up front so that the post-merger integration goes smoother. And right. I think those are great skills for an executive in any function of the business to have because an acquisition, if big enough and if done right, hits all the functions within a business. So you went from Oracle to SAP at SAT, eventually ran marketing for all of I'm sorry, SAP, all of SAP's uh, homegrown products over $3 billion in revenue. So that was a massive job. Can you talk a little bit about the difference in culture between Oracle, which of course is a Silicon Valley-based company, and SAP, which is a German company? Yeah. So people ask me this question a lot. Like you worked it because back in the day, there were the two big competitors. I mean, now, you know, there's so many other players that are, that you talk about, but back then they're like, what's the difference? And Really, it came down to culture. So Oracle is, I jokingly, lovingly call it a benevolent dictatorship. Like Larry Ellison, when I was there, ran it. And so once he made a decision, it got pushed down and everybody moved forward because Larry said. And so that that mentality kind of went throughout the whole organization. So if you needed a decision made on something, you would push it up to the chain till it got to the person. Hopefully, it didn't have to go all the way to Larry. Um, that was actually rare. That the person who said, yes, I have the authority to make this decision, then it gets pushed down and everybody's on board. I mean, it's a hierarchical, you know, very American, make your decisions, run, move fast. SAP, on the other hand, is run by boards. I mean, even the CEO doesn't have the ability to make decisions over all areas of the business. It's collective board groups. So before you make a decision, you have to get all these people involved and everybody's got to be on board because it's kind of like the decisions made by group consensus. So the good and the bad on both of those, and um, I know which one I actually thrive better in, but I don't think the two cultures, um, I don't think the two cultures are, there's not one that's better. Just what's better for you and, and where you do well. But the great thing about SAP is that it took a, unfortunately, it took a really long time to make decisions. But once a decision was made, it was well thought out and people were all on board and you executed very fast. Oracle can move quick, you make decisions fast. But then after, there's always fallout. So after a decision is made, 
you know, you got to then you got to do the work to get everybody on board because there's going to be some distractors who are going to try to get it reversed or maybe they're not going to give it their all because they weren't in on it. So the lesson I learned from all those is that building consensus doesn't go away no matter what the culture is. You're going to have to build consensus at some point. So just invest in it early. So whether the consensus comes up front and then the decision is made or the decision is made and then the consensus comes, either way, you got to get consensus to make it work. Exactly. Everything in business runs better with that. Yeah. And, and bringing people that maybe you don't love working with or they haven't been on your side before, bringing them in and getting it done. I mean, I mean, not to go political, but look at politics. When there are things that the two sides agree on, it shockingly moves faster. That's Heather Zinzak, former CMO of Domo and Pluralsight. When we come back, Heather talks about why she decided to take a random call from a junior recruiter that ended up changing her life. Stay with us. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. Today, our guest is Heather Zinzak. Just when Heather's career was shifting into high gear at SAP, she made a surprising move that turned out to be one of the best decisions she made. Let's get back to the conversation. All right, so you are riding high at SAP. You're now an executive. You have a massive business under your watch from a marketing perspective. How did you go from that point to this little no-name startup in stealth mode called Domo? So we had moved to Utah um, from the Bay Area just for personal reasons. We wanted to live in the mountains. We were start, had just started a family much later in life. And so we were living in Park City. And I was my role at SAP was so global that as long as I was near an airport. So I get this random email um, from a junior recruiter at Domo, uh, this new company that's just started that no one heard, has heard of, and says, hey, we're looking for product marketing managers you know, would you be interested or is anybody in your network interested? And I, I was honestly like this, not like I'm a big egomaniac, but I was, I was kind of offended. I was like, so I'm time back. I'm like flippant kind of nasty response, which I should not have done. It was not one of my finer moments, but I was like, um, I'm a global vice president at SAP. Uh, I wouldn't, I don't know anyone at the level that you're looking for. You're going to something like that. It wasn't quite that bad, but it was borderline. And then I kind of flippantly put in there, you know, if you're ever looking for a CMO, let me know. And I know I never I have no interest in going to be the CMO demo. Like I just threw that in there because I was kind of like, hey, buddy, like do your job better. Like actually look look at my resume and see what you know is appropriate. And and um and so all of a sudden I get this email back from the chief people officer at Domo, and it's like Josh James, the founder, would like to have lunch with you. And so I call my husband, and Josh was kind of legendary in Utah. He'd started Omniture that got bought, that went public and got bought by Adobe for a couple billion, and supposedly was just crazy. So I call my husband. I was like, I have no interest in working at this company. It doesn't even have any revenue. It doesn't have, it has nothing. Like, but you know, this Josh James guy is supposedly crazy, and I need more material for my cocktail party stories over the holidays. So I'm going to lunch. We're going to get some good, good, good stuff out of it. So I go to lunch and Josh is crazy, but he's crazy brilliant. And uh, just, we got along like a house on fire and I just wholehearted believed in what he was trying to accomplish with Domo, like what he wanted to do with that product and his vision. I was a hundred percent in. So not only did we go to lunch, but I ended up going back to the office and staying for a couple hours whiteboarding. And so um, we both took a bit of a leap of faith and I became the CMO of Domo. Josh is a legendary figure and and certainly cuts his own cloth. 
I recall, was there like a giant, was it a lion or some massive statue he put on the roof of the Domo headquarters? The rooster. Mm-hmm. The rooster. That's right. <laughs> so I jokingly, I would tell this to Josh, if you're here, he would deny it, but he's always been an entrepreneur and CEO. He's never done anything else. Like he started his first company in college and um, while well, he was at BYU and uh, but I, I, I always say, like, if you look at an entrepreneur, what would they do if they hadn't been a CEO? And I've worked, there's, you know, technical founders, there's product folks. Josh would be a marketer. Like, he is brilliant at marketing. And some of his ideas are so outlandish um, that you're just like, what? But it taught me when I worked for him, I learned a ton from Josh. But one of the most valuable lessons was, you know, uh, think big. Like, uh, he would come to me with like, Heather, I need da 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 And I'd be like, yeah, we can't do that. He's like, of course you can't just get it done. And I'd be like, what? Like, what? And so, you know, as an example, then when I went on to go work at Pluralsight, we were doing our first user conference and Aaron is not a marketer, my the CEO of Pluralsight. And I said, hey, we need to do a big user conference. And he was like, okay. And I was like, we've never done one, but we're an enterprise software company. And we, this is, here's all the great things you get out of it. Da, da, da. And so I think Aaron was thinking like, Literally, like uh, renting, because he's kind of a developer at heart. He was a developer before. He's kind of geek, you know, kind of the geeky side. And he was like, I think he was thinking like we would rent out a ball, like a, a conference room with a Marriott and order, like get pizzas. And so I come in with my big plan and the budget. And I'm like, I'm thinking that Michelle Obama or, you know, Malala or Melinda Gates would be our keynote. And he looks at me like I have five heads. And he's like, what? He's like, what are you talking about? He's like, you can't do that. And I was like, well, of course I can. And, you know, I got to give a little bit of credit to Josh because when we did, when we launched Domo Palooza, the user conference there, he pushed me um, from that perspective of how big it could be, how grand it could be. And look, those things make companies a ton of money, a ton of money. So um, they're extremely lucrative. So, you know, I think, um, you know, I already had that mentality. We talked about this earlier, you know, my father, but I think one thing that Josh pushed me even more is to think big. Domo is infamous for being in stealth mode for much longer than any other startup is in stealth mode. What was the deal with the stealth mode? Oh my God. So the honest answer is Josh was paranoid because he built this and what, you know, he was like the most amazing product on the planet, how we cannot let our competitors get it. And, you know, and I'm coming from the background of like Oracle and SAP, you're like, you know, you put all this stuff even on the website and let people look, you know, like he was like, no, they were getting, you know, this is our secret sauce. And so, um, you know, at first I tried to kind of fight him and get him to see my point of view and that obviously didn't work. And finally I was just like, you know what? this is what I'm good at. You have this crazy vision. I will go in and execute the hell out of it. And I will make lemonade out of lemons. That's just who I am. And so I did. And, you know, there was a lot of amazing things from a marketing perspective that we actually got out of stealth mode. So on one hand, I led the inside sales team. And so, you know, we'd have people calling customers and being like, you know, Hey, I want to talk to you. Finally get a customer be willing to meet with you. And then they'd be like, Oh, and I'm going to send you this NDA for you to sign before our call. And the customer would be like, you called me like, why would I sign an NDA? You called me and, you know, 25 times before I would finally get a meeting with you and you want me to sign an NDA. So there were, it was very difficult. Also, I think I told you yesterday, imagine going to Gartner's conference and not allowing the Gartner analyst to see your product at your booth. Like people coming up to the booth, you're like, oh, you're a Gartner analyst. Yeah. Step back. You can't come into our booth. (laughs) So there was definitely some very difficult things, but the great thing about it is we created all kinds of buzz. 
you know, it was like, um, you know, the club that has the line out front. Everybody wants to be in that club. And so we took advantage of it. So we got better press because we're like, hey, we don't tell anybody anything, you know, Mr. Reporter, but we'll talk to you about this. And so we got more articles written at trade shows. I, I think I told you the story yesterday. My One of our biggest dream force, our first really big dream force, we paid for the good space on the floor and we built a custom booth that was two stories that you had to go up to the top story that was enclosed to see the demo. And then you got these really great uh, Skull Candy headphones that I know the CEO and had gotten for cost. And the line wrapped around the Dreamforce floor. But not only that, there was giant buzz, like the social media of the hashtag, you know, all the hashtags for Dreamforce, a big chunk of them trending was about the Doma booth and the headphones and what's the line and what are they showing up there. And so, of course, Mark Benioff got smart. And the next year, you weren't allowed to have double-decker booths. But for one year, it was fantastic. So we we leveraged um, the, although the stealth mode was very difficult in so many ways, we also got a lot of greatness out of it. I remember that event. <laughs> I was one of the people standing in line and I was torn because the one part of me was like, I can't believe I'm standing in line for to see a demo of a visualization company. And on the other hand, there is this FOMO, like if everybody else is waiting in line, there must be something to this. So uh, it, it was a brilliant strategy. I go back to a great conversation I had with Luca Lazaran over at Sprinkler who talks about the challenges and advantages of working for a founder. And he basically said, founders are crazy. They defy gravity. The reason they're founders is because they don't see constraints. As someone who works for a founder, you have to accept that. And you can't change that because that's so fundamental to who they are. What you need to do, though, is figure out how to channel it, how to activate it, and how to kind of bring to reality these space-age visions that they're creating. And when you can find that combination, it's a magic combination. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's funny. And just now this like a little light bulb went off. You know, my, I told you earlier, my father was a serial entrepreneur. And so I think sometimes like there's this big study done on marriages. And basically it says that the marriages that have lasted the longest, the not necessarily the most loving marriages, but the ones that have stood the test of time is you, you end up being married to someone that has traits of someone that you lived in your household growing up. Because it doesn't seem, the things they do don't seem as crazy to you as somebody who didn't grow up around someone like that. And you know, my father was a serial entrepreneur. My sister is an absurdly successful founder. And, um, you know, so I think, so working with these, you know, I've now worked for two founders over a decade between Josh and Aaron. And they do, they, they live without constraints. They, because they have to believe what no one else does. And they have to believe something that everybody else thinks is impossible because that's what, you know, true successful founders have to do. And I think one of my superpowers is to take this, I always say the craziness or the vision or the whatever it is, and then just figure out how to execute it. Like, okay, I see that you see this, this big thing. Nobody else can see how we get from A to B, but I'm going to figure out how to get from A to B. And that's what I do. And I'm going to take everybody up the hill with me. And so it was a really awesome combination with with Josh because he thinks bigger than anyone. Like if you ever, I don't know if you play hearts, but if you ever play hearts to Josh, he always shoots them in. Always, always tries. He doesn't make it, but oh, you know, like he's just big all in all the time. And Aaron um, also just had unbelievable belief. It's a very mission driven company in what he was doing. Like he just, it was almost like his core, like, you know, we wear the white hats. We're on the side of the right. Like it was just like, you know, this, 
And so both of them in their own way, very, very much what um, the sprinkler uh, gentleman said, it's, and, and I think I, I do well with those kind of people. I like to create, take the chaos and, and make it into something. There's this interesting chain that's created where you've got the founder that just has this unshakable belief in the vision and the dream. And then you have the people that work for them that have this unshakable belief in the person, in the founder. And then you have the team under them that have this in unshakable belief in the plan and the approach. And so you get this really interesting set of links that ultimately make that dream that seems so impossible a reality. But everybody plays their part. And the underlying, the, the, the common denominator is the belief. The belief in something. I'm going to put a little bit of a spin on that because I don't think back to the founders are crazy. And again, father and sister founders, they're not crazy necessarily bad. I don't think it's so much that you have to, you do have to believe in the person, but I don't think it's the belief in the person. I think it's the belief in what they're trying to accomplish. Hmm. So with Josh, we had this vision of what we could do for the tech space. You know, I'd spent a whole career automating systems that had this you know, pile of data that came out of it that no one was using. It was like this pile of scrap metal that had diamonds in it. And so uh, we all really believed in the vision of what we could create. And with Aaron, we believed it was democratizing tech skills. So whether you were a small town kid in Texas that, you know, grew up in a sexist household and you were a girl, you could go get tech skills and be the best coder, or you were living in a grass hut in Nairobi, which one of my favorite customers was, and he became one of the most highest paid uh, coders out there. Like we, we all believed we were giving, we, we, you know, brilliance is, is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. And we were trying to balance that out. So I actually think it's the belief in, it doesn't have to be the belief in the person, because I do think some founders are so big, it's hard to always, you know, but it has to be the belief in what they're doing. And I think you made a really great point on the next level down. Because the team that worked for me, one of the best compliments I ever received was a guy who worked for me. And he said, you know, what's great about working with you, Heather, is you always call the ball. He's like, we know where we're going. You set the plan, you call the ball, we're all moving to it. And mm-hmm. I think that next level down has to do that, that to your point of like, they've got to operationally get you where you're going. And that's I, right. I think there's, that's a really, really astute observation. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. So Pluralsight, also a challenging situation to step into, but for very different reasons. Can you talk a little bit about Pluralsight, the company that you walked into and kind of how you addressed that challenge? Yeah. So when I started, they they crossed the 100 million mark. So for anybody that's working at you know startups or earlier stage, there's this can we get to 100 million in revenue? They had crossed it. And they'd had, you know, massive growth, 100% year over year, et cetera. And the year before I started, it wasn't, the year wasn't complete. So I don't know if I realized quite where it was, but growth had stalled. It basically gone flat. Um, and so they, the CEO, founder, Aaron, brilliant man, basically revamped his leadership team. And the first two hires he made was a new head of marketing and a head of sales. And we came in and worked 
just really closely together. And I'm not your, wasn't your traditional CMO there. I had all the traditional things you think of in marketing and product marketing, PR, demand gen. But I also owned the digital revenue piece, which was about a hundred million. So it was significant. By the time I left, it was a hundred million. And then I also owned the inside sales team. So between myself and this guy, Joe, who is like a brother to me still to this day, we came in and revamped and created a go-to-market motion. And the really cool thing about Pluralsight, they had done all these acquisitions back to our M&A and they'd done a great job. They'd done eight acquisitions in a number of years. They finally got it all together, worked through the post-merger integration, had a really, truly great enterprise product to sell, didn't have an enterprise motion to sell it. Not a sales team, not a mark, nothing. I mean, so my first year, you know, I would love to like toot my horn and say how amazing I was, but it was kind of the 101 of marketing. Like they didn't have great reporting on pipeline. They didn't have goals for demand gen. They didn't have, they never talked to an analyst. They didn't have a field marketing team. You know, like I could go on, like, but it was just really basic, obvious stuff. And then it got harder, but Joe and I built, um, a true go to market and we accelerated growth to over 50% year over year. Uh, and Morgan Stanley, when we went public, told us we are the only company that they knew of that over 100 million had gone flat and then re-accelerated to above 50% year-over-year growth. Because when you're that big, it's hard to get up into those 50% numbers again. And it's what why the company went public and just really proud of that work. And I would say the for anybody looking at a marketing position or anyone looking at a sales leadership position, that relationship between sales and marketing, it has, it's the most important relationship. It's more important than your boss. It's more important than the people that work for you. If sales and marketing aren't completely aligned and just running and rowing in the same direction together, it, it, does, it doesn't work. So that would be my one piece of advice is Joe was amazing. And we started at the same time. And my head of sales at Domo, Chris Harrington, was amazing too. So you really want a true partner in those instances. So one of the one of the unique dimensions that you bring as a CMO is you've raised money with Josh, you've taken a company public at Pluralsight. What are your observations related to the role that the CMO plays in the raise or the IPO process? And what specifically did you bring to the table? Yeah, I kind of, you know, stumbled or pushed my way into being really involved in raising money at both Demo and Pluralsight. So Josh, the first two years I was at Demo did not have a CFO. We, he hadn't hired Bruce Felt yet. And so, and he raised half a billion dollars. Like what, you know, no matter what people think of Josh one or the other, everybody agrees he's great at raising money. So I kind of learned from the master. And so, because he didn't have a CFO, he had, I think like a director or of finance, um, maybe a VP. I ended up, me and my team, because I also had all the creatives, we created all the decks for all of the investor pitches. And then I went on all of them to make sure that like everything was right and any comments, anything we wanted to change. So, you know, it probably didn't start out as a glamorous role, um, being the PowerPoint girl, but it, you know, I got to go to all the meetings and then by the end of it, and then I also helped Josh with the story because we're riffing back and forth. Let's change this and this slide. Let's change this and that one. I'm like, what about a slide that says this? So fantastic experience, um, you know, being in all those meetings, being a part of the discussions. And then at Pluralsight, I pushed really hard to, and this is what I would tell CMOs, pushed hard at an, at an IPO to be a big part of it. It needs to be you and your CEO founder and your CFO partnering on the story. Going public is a marketing event. Yes, you raise a ton of money, but you also get massive market exposure. You get your customers know about you. It elevates um, your reputation in the marketplace. You should get a ton of press. 
uh, if you do it right. Employees are over the moon. It's a huge employee event. You're going to get a big bump in how hard everybody works for the next couple quarters. Um, and it's a massive demand gen event. So our organic traffic um, at Pluralsight was through the roof. Like I truthfully could have cut ad spend for a couple months because we had so many people coming to the website after the IPO. And the final thing and why the CMO needs to be so involved, it's you're telling your story. This That's all an IPO is. You're out telling your story so that people will give you money. They have to buy the story. They have to believe in the story. And as the head of marketing, you should be working on uh, the pitch deck with your CFO. I personally owned the Net Roadshow video. That was a deliverable from my team. And that's the main video that goes out to all investors. Um, so CMOs uh, and or heads of marketing should be really involved in the IPO process. I actually went on the roadshow and attended the meetings. So it was a wonderful experience. Another dimension related to the plural site that you had talked about is this mission-driven orientation. I think that really came to the fore when COVID hit. You at that, I, I, I think it's safe to say you saw COVID and the ramifications of COVID coming before many did. Can you talk a little bit about your observations related to COVID and how you responded? Yeah, so I don't want to look like I'm a, a soothsayer ahead of the markets. None of us saw what COVID was going to be. I mean, I think it, it, it uh, was a tsunami over all of us. But um, living in Utah, which is a rather uh, conservative state and um, uh, has been slower on a lot of the COVID response, in February, I sat down our leadership team and said, hey, I think we need to look at this virus that I'm hearing that we're hearing about coming out of China. And my team was very much like most teams on the planet. Like, this is not a big deal. You know, we had, you know, we had bird flu before we had SARS, like this, it's in China at the time. And I was like, guys, I think it's, I just, in my, I was like, I think it's bigger than this. We need to be prepared. No one really bought into that. So I, as most marketers, which are the marketers in fun, you should be the head of crisis communications and crisis management. That's what the marketer has to do. So I just said, you know what? This is my hat. The board is going to be angry at me if I don't do a good job planning for a potential crisis. So I got into planning mode and planned if we did have a crisis. And the great thing was, so then by March, when, you know, for Utah, when the jazz players got sick and everybody was like, oh, my God, if the jazz can get it, anyone can. <laughs> um, you know, spoken like a true jazz fan I am. Uh, so when people realized this was a big deal, we were so ready. Like, and our response was phenomenal. So the CEO came to me and he said, Heather, you know, you saw this. And I was like, might've just been a fluke because he said, but you saw this for the rest of us. What else should we do? And I said, give me some time to think about it. Give me a couple of days. And I came back and what we, what I pitched to him and the CFO, which was a little bit scary, but I'd done, I'm a very data driven person, extremely analytical, um, as you know, finance MBA cons consultant. And I put this whole thing together to say, we should give the product away for free for a full month unlimited, anybody, anywhere, any part of our product to individual consumers. And they were like, what? And I was like, look, it's tied into who we are. We try to make the world a better place. We give people tech skills. And the world right now needs two things. Number one, everybody needs to stay home. Like that's, if you guys remember back into 2020, Mar end of March, everybody's like, stay home, stay away from everybody, don't spread it. And this will be gone by August is what we were all hopeful. So I was like, we need to stay home. Let's give everybody in the world something to do while they stay home. Beef up your tech skills. The second thing is there's a gajillion people who are going to lose their jobs or not have a job for a while that work in service industries. Can we give them some tech skills so that they can maybe go pick up contract work from home? Maybe 
you know, the guy who uh, was a bartender and blah, 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 learns JavaScript and can pick up some extra JavaScript, you know, consulting gigs at home until this works its way out. I was like, this is who we are. We're mission driven. We're a company better for the planet. So we launched free April and for the whole month of April. And it was, it was not easy. Like my CFO was like, how much is this going to cost us? And, and I was like, I don't need extra budget. And I was like, and I think I could be wrong, but I don't think the money we lose in individual revenue, we're now going to have more leads because these people will all eventually work at companies that we can go and potentially sell our solution to companies. And it was phenomenally successful. We doubled our, our customer base. I mean, it was crazy. 1.5 million people signed up. We broke, we broke Mark, our Mercado instance. We almost broke our product. Like it was uh, just, I, we never seen the likes. Like I, I've been telling my team for years, we need to find something that's truly viral. And this was like exceeded all expectations. And, and you and I talked yesterday, not to ramble, but about why that was so successful. And I think when you do free programs, any freemiums, anybody who's out there, when you can do it from a place, which we truly did, where we were giving back, there wasn't a stick in it for the company. We wanted to give back to the planet. Now, the nice thing was because it was so overwhelmingly successful, it actually was hugely successful for the company in terms of lead generation, but that's not why we did it. And I think the altruistic nature of it shone through. And so we got a ton of people pushing in and promoting it because it was the real deal. Yeah. I think that people have a spidey sense around what's authentic and what's done out of self-interest. And there's there's magic things that happen when you're doing things for the right reasons. People respond to that and, and want to be a part of that. So uh, a bold move, but a, but a brilliant move as well. I wanted to touch on a point that you made Related to the fact that Pluralsight, it's based in Utah. Utah is, is a conservative state um, from a diversity perspective, maybe less diverse than what you'd see on the coasts. One of the things, though, that you were able to accomplish is uh, diversity in terms of the teams that you built, both racially, from a gender perspective, from a sexual orientation perspective. Can you talk a little bit about your approach there and how you accomplish that? Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to wind back until a little bit more. So at one point, when I was interviewing for jobs after Domo, before I went to Pluralsight, because I, I left Domo knowing I wanted to do something new, and I interviewed with everybody on the planet, and all of my job opportunities other than Pluralsight were all in the Bay Area, and we looked at moving back. We lived in San Francisco forever, and we chose not to for a lot of reasons, um, which I won't go into, but one of the reasons on the list is I really believe you can't be what you can't see, and Utah, in my opinion, does not have enough diverse diversity in leadership. There's not enough women. There's not enough people of color. There's not enough people from the LGBTQ community. So I, one of the things I didn't realize until I got up to the edge of the abyss and looked into moving back to the Bay Area is I was like, you know what? Like Utah needs more me's and I love being a pioneer. And so how can I be a pioneer and an example? Where can I make the most impact? And so, so when I stayed here, I was like, okay, I really got to continue to, I got to step up my impact. So at Domo, I'd started a group called Women at Domo, which I think was really successful and helped a ton of women in their careers. But at Pluralsight, we did that on steroids. So I started Women at Pluralsight and we, we did so much. And one of the things I'm really proud of, we did a mentoring program that over 700 people were mentored through it both men and women. It didn't matter. It wasn't just for women. The only thing we said is that it can't be a male, male mentoring. There's got to be a woman somewhere involved in the mentoring chain. 
um, and wildly successful. Um, I then kind of made a platform about going out. I speak, I'm speaking later today at a women's group for another company. I'm, you know, just trying to do more out there. And one of the most important things is building your own team. So selfishly, as a manager, I have seen I get better results from a team that is diverse. There's more uh, difference of opinion. There's more thoughts that come in. You get more creativity. Um, you don't get an end up in groupthink. So I was, but you have to be extremely thoughtful. And then if you do this in a place like Utah, it's even harder. So I can't remember the exact stat, but it's less than 20% of the workforce in Utah is are women in, in, in my industry. And my team was 50-50. I think we were actually 51% women. We were uh, one of the largest team in terms of people of color and in terms of LGBTQ. And so much so that when Pluralsight started, uh, people of color, um, a BIPOC, uh, uh, ERG, Employee Resource Group, even though I'm not of color, um, they asked me to be the executive sponsor um, because I'm so passionate about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, mentored so many people. So I, I think you have to be very deliberate in hiring. You have to be very deliberate in who you look at. You have to. So a couple of pieces of advice in hiring diverse teams. Uh, put people on the interview schedule that are interviewing that are diverse. If you have all of the same interviewing the people, you're going to end up with more of the same, whether whatever that same is. Create. um create situations where you don't have an only try to never have an only. And it could be like, we joked on my leadership team for a while. This one guy was the only, cause he was the only white male of a certain religion. And you know, he was LDS, which is very common in Utah. And I was like, we got to get another white male LDS. So you aren't the only, you know, which in Utah, that's, you know, so try to create situations where you don't have an only because you need, and then try to create situations where you listen to everyone and specifically ask people who don't speak up as much that you can hear all the diverse opinions. So those are a couple pieces of advice. I love that. One other topic I wanted to hit briefly, you posted on LinkedIn uh, an interesting article, which I really appreciated. You talked about how you felt, uh, let me find the actual quote here. You felt guilty related to not being able to bring a hot lunch to your child's school. Can you talk a little bit about that article? Oh my God, I have felt guilty. I feel an enormous amount of guilt. And it might be because I came from this big Catholic family. My mother's side are all Italian Catholics and there's a lot of guilt in Catholicism, but I've felt so much guilt throughout motherhood. And this was one hilarious, I'll just tell the story because it's really funny. This mom, and God love her, she's a wonderful woman, sent an email out to like, everybody in the parent community that said, Hey, the sign up sheet for teacher appreciation is this week. Heather, I went ahead and saved plates and cups for you because we know you won't be able to bring something to the school in the middle of the day. <laughs> and, there's a, and it's like to everybody in the parent community, like, hello, slacker, Heather can't do. And I was just like, Oh my God. And then also I was secretly so relieved. I was like, Oh my God, thank God. This woman saved me plates and cups. Otherwise I don't know what I would do because I can't bring a hot. And so, you know, and it, there was one example, but there's a gajillion, you know, you, I, I joke that the reason I've been able to be a mom of three boys within four years that are all high energy and do these crazy jobs is because I'm okay with mediocrity at times because you're never going to be perfect at everything in your life. So you're going to feel guilty 
when you choose to miss the violin recital and your husband or nanny videos it for you because you had a board meeting and you're going to feel guilty when you hold the ground and leave early when they're working on a big project that you're like, I'll have to review it tonight because I've got a soccer game right now. I can't miss. So you're going to feel bad at all those times. And it's never, you just have to figure out how to deal with it because it's, you can't be perfect at everything. And the other thing I would say is I'm now learning. I, I One thing I shared in that article is when we were debating having a third child, I talked to about 10 women that had significant number of children, at least two or three, and what had big, massive careers. And they all said there's different stages. And so for all of them said when their children were young, it was easier to step on the gas because you could pay someone to feed and bathe. Like our first, our nanny that we had the first 10 years, she was better at potty training than I am. Like she was amazing at getting on a sleep schedule and potty. And then when you came home, the little ones just could not, they just want to be around you all the time. And they're in your lab and they're telling you stories and they're, you know, and now I got teenagers and, you know, let me tell you, like you have to be there. They're, they're not running home to tell you stories. Like, so I actually now in these stages and for anybody who's gone through all of them can appreciate this. Um, I'm actually, one of the reasons I've chosen to do board work for a while is so that I have more flexibility and I'm just around work. So I got to be there in the moment. So I would say on, on the balance thing for moms, dads, whoever, a cut yourself some slack because you're never going to be perfect at everything and it'll work its way out and B know that different stages of your kids' lives are going to be different. And it's, I think it's harder when they're a little bit older. I think the demands time-wise are more significant, which doesn't make sense, but it, it does if you've been through it. And so try to figure out a way to step on the gas early so that if you want some more options when your kids hit, you know, middle school and high school, that you can try to figure that out. Well, Heather, this has been a whirlwind of a conversation. We went from carnival life to taking a company public to the trials and travails of raising teenagers. <laughs> Thank you so much for all of your advice and wisdom. I'll end on this final question. As you look back across your life, what would you say is the one thing that's made the biggest difference for you? You know, we kind of talked about this earlier, but I think almost all of my successes have come from always bringing my A game. So people who are earlier in your career, like every single person on the planet has had a job where they did not like the job or they did not like the task or they were given something to do they didn't want to do or they thought was beneath them. And my advice to you is always knock it out of the park. I've gotten the best opportunities in my life because someone did something that I never thought anybody would notice. I gave it my all and there randomly was somebody who did. Hmm. I went on a, an SAP. I got stuck running this partner event. that was a total boondoggle that my boss was like, it's a boondoggle. Just kind of go. But I didn't. I came in and I did amazing. Randomly, a very senior executive showed up at that event and he went on, he's now the CEO of a really successful public company. He went on to mentor me after that because he saw me bring my A game. And I didn't have to. No one knew he was coming. No one knew anyone was coming. I, I have like 25 examples of things like that. So my advice to everyone is if you're going to do it, do it well. Yeah. Um, bring your A game or say no, because you don't know who's watching. You don't know the impact it will have because the best things in my life have come out of times where I brought my A game um, and it turned into something I never would have would have fathomed. Heather, it's been a great conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. 
For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.